Our second scripture lesson is from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God, And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This too is the word of God for the people of God. I would like to explore a very simple question with you all this morning. It's pretty easy. I think we can do it in like five minutes, right? Who are we? It seems like a very innocuous, simple question to ask in the short minutes I have of a sermon, right? Who are we? What are we? In my favorite movie, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, the titular character, he's gazing out at the night sky and he's standing there with his friend who is a possum. And he says, who am I, Kylie? Why a fox? Why not a horse or a beetle or a bald eagle? I'm saying this more as like existentialism, you know? Who am I? How can a fox ever be happy without, you'll excuse the the expression, a chicken in its teeth? The monologue finishes and there's a beat and Kylie replies, I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds illegal. And I promise that today whatever we're talking about is probably not illegal. So today is about identity and understanding who we are and who God is, which is appropriate, of course, because today is Trinity Sunday. Last week was Pentecost, the day that we celebrate the birth of the church when the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples, giving them her power just as Jesus promised that she would. And so naturally today we celebrate all three persons of the Trinity, which are awesome and mysterious and equal in glory and co-equal in majesty or something like that. And it's not really a huge day for most traditions. Trinity Sunday doesn't really get a lot of fanfare. And, you know, it also happens to be one of perhaps the most difficult theological concepts to understand. So yay, Trinity Sunday. And I suppose it would be liturgically correct for me to spend some time today outlining our reformed understanding of our triune God, talking about the three persons and how we experience each of them, but genuinely did a better job than I could have done in the children's message, so we'll maybe just stick with that. And I could wax poetically and pretentiously about how it's possible that God is indeed three distinct persons and yet only one God, but that would truly not be fun for anyone, least of all me, and I don't think it would be a good use of our time. So here's what I will say about the Trinity. The idea of the Trinity, the most important idea of the Trinity for me is based 
in the concept of relationship. God is relationship. God's very existence is in relationship with God's self. And perhaps that is an equally complicated thing to say, but it is true. Seeking to understand the Trinity is a quest to understand the very nature of God. And the Trinity directly points us to God as relationship and God in relationship. If we define or attempt to define some small part of God in relational terms, then it stands to reason that we too are defined in our relationship. We are created in the image of God, and we find our meaning in who we are before God and who we are before others. So to answer the question of who is God also leads us to answer the question, who are we? And Psalm 8, which David read so beautifully, is sort of this perfect embodiment of who we are and who God is and who we are before God, all wrapped up in nine verses. The psalmist standing before God asks our eternal question, who am I? You are the sovereign, the creator, my Lord, but who am I? You have created the cosmos, and here we are seeing all of this work, and we have to wonder, where do we fit in with all of this? There's the stars and the planets and the mountains and all of this lush greenery and the ocean, these truly magnificent things. And we're a part of that, and it seems just beyond me. God is so above, so other, so powerful. How is it possible that I am involved in that? Uh, Friedrich Schiller's Ode to Joy, which was famously put to use in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, reads, Do you sense the creator world? Seek him above the starry canopy. Above the stars must God dwell. Out there in the stars, working in the cosmos, and here's tiny us on this tiny planet. Last week, uh, while we were in this small town outside of Salzburg, I took a cable car up into a mountain in the Alps, um, and from the top on this perfectly clear day, you could see forever. You could see into the village that was on the other side of the mountain. You could see across the valley to the distant summits of other peaks. And there was the glittering white of this glacier, and it, it doesn't seem appropriate to call that view magnificent. It was like standing on top of the world and peering out onto the very fingerprints of God. I think the psalmist and Schiller say it better than I do. The world is so big, and we are so very small. And that is true, but I don't think that's the takeaway from Psalm 8. It's not that we are small and insignificant, but, but rather that we're not, right? In this whole world, God, who is sovereign with all of the power, calls us beloved, calls us God's own. We call God our Lord because, well, that's who God is, and God gives us this unfathomable amount of love and true responsibility, the responsibility to care for creation and the creatures within it. Psalm 8 reminds us that while God is huge and powerful, we are not, in reality, garbage. We are, in fact, deeply loved and cared for by someone who is beyond our comprehension. It's about humility. 
recognizing who we are before God and being humbled by its magnitude. We can be beloved by God, which we are, and also bowled over by the grandeur of God, which we ought to be. The two are not mutually exclusive. It is right to recognize how loved we are by God and then respond in humility. As people who come from relative privilege, learning to bow before our Creator is probably a good habit to get into. Plus, what new perspectives might we gain if we look at the world with our heads figuratively dipped in reverence? So, so far, we know that God is big. And we know that God calls us good and beloved, and we know that God is sovereign, which calls us to humility. And so now Romans is essentially telling us this same story. It is telling us who we are before God. In his typical circular language, Paul uh, is giving us an explanation of justification and the way in which we are made right before God. Romans 5, it details our existence now that we are justified by our faith. Paul tells us that we are given peace with our sovereign Lord, which means that we were once the opposite of peace, but now we experience this peace and unity with our Creator. We have peace, present tense, and we boast in the hopes of the glory of God, future tense. If I can quote from Beethoven's Ninth again, peace and joy advance in perfect concord, like the changing play of the waves. All that was harsh and hostile has turned into sublime delight. Formerly in turmoil, now at peace and hopeful for our future. This is another part of who we are. It does not mean, of course, that we are all of a sudden sinless or without flaws or completely perfect. I need to spend all of 30 seconds on any road in Atlanta to be reminded that I am indeed a sinner in need of grace, and so is everybody else. (laughs) But again, like we learned from Psalm 8, this does not mean that we are worms. Verse 2 of Romans 5 reads, this grace in which we stand, standing in grace, standing with our feet planted on the ground, not kneeling not crawling, not lying on our faces. Standing implies both a certainty and an ability. We are held upright in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The not-so-great parts of ourselves, the depths of our sin, they do not preclude us from the experience of grace, nor do they dilute the truth of it. While we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, The text tells us Christ died for us. In a move that goes against all human expectation and understanding, to show God's love for us, God incarnate chose to die for the ungodly. It says, while we were still sinners, which means that God loves us then when Jesus died, and right now, as we are in fact still sinners. And I don't want you to hear this as a, you're terrible, but God loves you anyway, because for one thing, it creates a space for a less than healthy relationship. It puts the possibility of conditions on the love. Imagine for a moment being a kid and coming home with some C's and D's on your report card, and your parents looking at you and saying, well, 
you're stupid, but I love you anyway. It's the but that kills it. It says that there will, be, there will come a time when perhaps you will be too stupid to be loved, too stupid, too poor, too ugly, too bad to be loved. And under no circumstances are there conditions on the love that God has given to us. And I don't think that that is what Romans or any part of the Bible is telling us. Rather, we are sinners, and we are also deeply and unconditionally loved by God. That is another piece of who we are, beloved and sinners. The two are not mutually exclusive. God does not love us in spite of our sinfulness, and we are not now called beloved because we are no longer sinners. Grace was and is given to us exactly as we are, exactly where we are. There is nothing we can do but receive this inescapable and unconditional gift of love and grace. And I think that works on the other side of the coin, right? None of us are so terrible that we have not been given the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And none of us are so amazing or holy or pious or right that we somehow stand to receive more grace or more love. We all stand on equal footing when it comes to standing before God flawed and full of grace. That is who we are. And standing in grace, being propped up by the grace of God, it it means something. It changes us. There's that old saying, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. What do our lives look like if grace is what props us up, if it is the thing in which we stand? It means that we stand for the one who gives us grace. It means that our very lives are planted in the one who calls us beloved. And that, of course, means that our lives reflect our belovedness, reflect the grace that we have received. Our triune God exists in relationship. The only way that God exists is in love. And God is love, and so we are created in the image of God, which means we are also created in relationship. We are created in and to love. That is who we are. When we help to feed our food-insecure neighbors at ICM or at Clifton, we are taking a stand for who we were created to be. When we greet one another in the name of Christ, We are taking a stand for who we were created to be. When we radically love those people that the church has often overlooked or turned away from, we are taking a stand for who we were created to be. When we lend our voice, our money, our hands to those people who cannot or have been not allowed to stand for themselves, we are taking a stand for who we were created to be. When we look at someone and we recognize that they are beloved, we are taking a stand for who we were created to be. In just a few minutes, David and Callie will bring their son, Charlie, to the font to be baptized. And we will baptize that young man in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, our holy and magnificent triune God that same God who calls sweet Charlie into relationship, who has already bestowed love and unconditional grace on him. 
And because Charlie cannot yet stand in faith for himself, his mom and his dad, his grandparents, his family and his friends, we w- and us, his church family, we will make promises to stand for Charlie, to stand and hold him up in faith and love as he grows. We will make promises to be in relationship with him, to hold him tightly to the body of Christ as we continue to live into the grace in which we stand. We will stand for one another in relationship with one another. Friends, God is massive and mighty and mysterious, and God loves us just as we are, loves us beyond measure, and calls us God's own. Be overcome by that truth and turn your gaze outward. Feel the stirring of the Spirit as she calls you to God and ask yourselves, what do you stand for? Amen.